Well, can we just give it up for our worship and our tech team for that this morning? Man, that's incredibly powerful. Well, whether you're visiting with us today or Sunridge is your church home, whether or not you're exploring faith or this is the place where week in and week out you come so that you can recalibrate and then be resent out in the world to make a difference for Christ. We are just so grateful that you would spend a portion of your weekend with us. My name is Jed, and it is an absolute privilege and honor to get to serve as one of our pastors on staff. And this morning, I have the privilege of continuing in a series, our Sunday morning series, where we're studying through the book the letter of Colossians, which was one of 13 attributed to the Apostle Paul. And I'd encourage you to go back into our sermon archives. You can find them on sunridgechurch.org. Watch here so that you can see the first three weeks. Britt did an incredible job in week one and week two. And then Danny did an incredible job last week as well. And so without having to rehash too much context for us, again, I'd encourage you to find some time this week Go back and listen to those messages. This morning, uh, Britt gave me a little bit of a doozy here. He's laughing uh, because I get to uh, work all the way through chapter two. And I was giving Britt a hard time because weeks one and week two, he had a couple verses here and there, and then he decided uh, that, that we'd get to take a long one today. But I'm grateful to get to do that for us. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Colossians chapter two. Here's the deal. And every week of this series, we have stood together to read the text. We're not going to do that this morning because you would be standing for 30 or so minutes. And so I'm going to be reading us all of the text, but in bits and pieces. And in your note sheet, you'll find that there is a little three-part column deal. And if you would like to, at any point during this message, jot down a few things that I'll share about those little pieces of the text, you can feel free to do so, or even better, perhaps later in your own time, you can go back and read yourself and then reflect on what God is teaching you through his words. Does that sound good? All right, so we're going to start again in Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to turn there, and then after every little section here, I'll just comment on a few things. That'll take us about to a third or halfway of the message. And then we'll conclude with some things for us to consider in our day and time. All right. Colossians chapter 2, Paul continues his letter and he says, For I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. And unlike the later sections that we'll read, we're going to stop right there. One of the interesting things about this letter to the church in Colossae or Colossae is that the Apostle Paul does not know many in this community. And one of his colleagues, Epaphras, is the one who went to this region that is now modern-day Turkey to found this church, but Paul doesn't intimately know the people or the names or the faces or the stories of those congregants there. And in the first few weeks of this series, we have remarked and learned that unlike some of Paul's other letters, like the one that he writes to the church in Galatia or to the two that we have remaining to the ones in Corinth, he takes a tone that isn't as angry and it's pretty warm. 
And that is intentional because if Paul were to come out guns blazing with a church that he did not know intimately, it would probably further expound some of his issues in his time. You see, the Apostle Paul is revered and loved to us today, but in his day and age, he was much maligned, very misunderstood, and a confusing character to people around him because he was raised in the Jewish faith, held to that incredibly strongly, became a Pharisee. He was amongst the elite, and then he had a radical conversion experience where he was met by the risen Lord. At that point, instead of going about and continuing to actually persecute and demand the killing of Christians, he turned his life around and began to share about faith in Christ who was reconciling the whole world to himself, not just a singular group of people as he had grown up believing was the case. And so as Paul writes to this church in Colossae, he speaks in a way that is incredibly warm. But as we get into chapter 2, we recognize that something is actually awry. He isn't just going to heap encouragement or praise on them over and over. He indicates that something is happening internally to him as he reflects on where they are. Again, I want you to know how much I am struggling for you. It's athletic imagery that requires a type of steadfast endurance in the place before that Danny spoke last week where Paul writes about how for this we toil and struggle with all the energy he so powerfully inspires within me in reference to presenting everyone mature in Christ. Paul now continues to really put into effect what's going on in his heart. People in this valley who don't know him well. In verse 2, he writes, I want their hearts to be encouraged and united in love. And I just realized, you know, this isn't that long of a section, so can we stand and just read this one together? How about that? Let's do that. I thought about doing that this week, and then I forgot as I began to read. So let's do this together in the spirit of what we've done so far in this series. Let's read on the screen. One, two, three. I want their hearts to be encouraged and united in love so that they may have all the riches of assured understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I'm saying this so that no one may deceive you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, and I rejoice to see your morale and the firmness of your faith in Christ. You may be seated. It sounds pretty good. So one of the things that Britt elucidated in week one is that one of Paul's concerns for this church were new heresies that were spouting out and were really a form of religious syncretism, so a melting pot of sorts of different ideas. It was an incredibly robust religious region, and so there were lots of different thoughts, whether it was from Jewish heritage or Gnostic ideas. And so when Paul is writing in this section, he is confirming the fact that for many in this church congregation and in this city, they are being confronted with idea after idea that would supplant the mystery that is Christ himself. 
And we don't know too much about how Gnosticism was prevalent in this time. It would have been in its earliest of stages. But one of the things that I found incredibly insightful when I was doing my own study for this section is that the Gnostics actually had this odd idea that was steeped in harsh Platonic dualism where there was this unknowable, objective God and then something beneath him a creator of sorts who was kind of arrived that created the physical world that we know today, and Danny alluded to this last week. And so the goal of these Gnostics with their special knowledge was actually to help individuals at some point escape from this fleshly body and be in touch with the divine spark that the objective God had placed in them so that they would escape into this kingdom of light. And so earlier on when Paul writes, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his son, we can see that Paul is playing on ideas that are incredibly poignant to his congregation, the people there. And so there's so many things that we see here, his allusion to not just mystery, but the wisdom and knowledge. Again, Danny last week touched on how wisdom is a personified character that is critical in the Hebrew scriptures. In the verse 4, he says, I'm telling you these things, the mystery that is Christ himself, so that no one may, what? Deceive you with what? Plausible arguments. One of the things that's very interesting about this lengthy section that we're in is Paul employs word after word that he does not typically use in his corpus of writing. They're filled with hoppox. It's a term for a word that's used one time in a document. And in fact, these are words that are one time in the New Testament, which is more fully what that refers to. And so Paul is interjecting language that is not necessarily typical to him to confront a problem That's serious and new. And in verse 6, he continues saying, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. How many of you have heard these verses before? Many would consider them to be the heart of this letter in Paul's true tone. His concern for the Christians, the Christ followers in Colossae, is that they would go back, they would hearken back to the receiving of Christ Jesus the Lord. In other words, they would go back and remember the time in which they were first presented with the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the Christ, whom Paul here says is the Lord, an incredibly lofty title, one of his favorites for Jesus. He uses it over 260 times, the Lord, Jesus, the Christ. And what's interesting about this section is in our English translations where it might say continue to live your lives in him, literally in the Greek, it actually says to walk in him. And that's beautiful imagery because for many of these Christians who were of Jewish background and descent, when they thought about the Hebrew scriptures, when they thought about the first five books, their Torah, the guide, the instruction, the way, they knew 
that the manner in which they were supposed to respond with God continually, day in and day out, was to walk and step with him. And yet that language was in direct reference to their Hebrew scriptures. And so when Paul says, as you've received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him, the audacity of that statement is they need not just spend their time reflecting on the things that they were told over and over, but instead to find the fullness of their God in the person of Christ, which becomes clear as we go into this next longer section. Verse eight says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have come to fullness in him who is the head of every ruler and authority. In him you also were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of the flesh and the circumcision of Christ when you were buried with him in baptism. You were also raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. Wow. Yeah. Amen. That's beautiful. You know, I often think about when Paul, under the guidance and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you know, it must be different in the beginning or the end when he's writing greetings to people that he knows, you know, stuff that's pretty familiar. But other times I imagine that when he is writing or dictating to his amanuensis, that stuff comes out that is so shocking to him, right? That he would almost look at the things that God has spoken him through his spirit and just go, Whoa, like, yeah. <laughs> in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Again, Danny alluded to this last week, but the audacity, the ridiculousness of this idea is that God himself the word would become flesh that in the incarnation, which we've spoken to over and over, particularly in the Christmas season, that in the person of Christ, all the fullness of who God is would become knowable in a way that we as human beings can see and grasp and understand. It's remarkable. And yet the way that Paul places Christ is in sharp juxtaposition to all of these religious ideas that the people in Colossae apparently are being compelled and drawn by because of people in their community who are really good talkers, who are skilled in rhetoric and apologetics and are trying to convince them that there is something other than Christ. And in that whole section about circumcision and uncircumcision, which we don't talk about too much, they understand that these were ethnic markers of saying, you're in or you're out. And Paul isn't just working in these categories where he's going to put people in these places and say, you're either in or you're out. He's saying, no, in Christ. 
and what he has done and ultimately his triumphing of the cross all of the ways in which you looked at this world and you thought it was supposed to be because of your religious heritage and tradition, that is no longer the case. I find it so fascinating. Then these first verses here when it says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy, literally the love of wisdom, an empty deceit according to human tradition. Those words in the Greek are literally verbatim for the way that it's described that Jesus speaks to the Pharisees. I love this. In Mark chapter 7, as Jesus is referring back to the prophet Isaiah, and then in speaking to the Pharisees, he said to them, Isaiah prophesied rightly about you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrine. That's the same Greek that we have there in Colossians. And then Jesus says, you abandon the commandment of God and hold to human tradition. Come on, Jesus. It's pretty incredible there. So much going on here. What about this picture? That God makes us alive together with him. When he forgave us all of our trespasses, when he erases the record that stood against us with its legal demands, when he set this aside, nailing it to the cross, when he disarmed the rulers and authorities and made public example of them, triumphing over them in it. There are lots of different ways that scholars have attempted to look at this pretty odd language. And some would say that the elemental spirits of the rulers and the authorities are cosmic deities of sorts, which would have been familiar in a Jewish mindset or a Greco-Roman context, this idea that there were sub-deities all throughout the cosmos. But one of the ways that we can see this clearly is that one of, Jesus, in triumphing over the Jewish and the Roman system that nailed him to the cross, indicates humans, you can't hold me down because I am who I am. Verse 16, therefore do not let anyone condemn you in matters of food and drink or observing festivals, new moons or Sabbaths. These are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Do not let anyone disqualify you insisting on self-abasement and worship of angels, dwelling on visions, puffed up without cause by a human way of thinking and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows with a growth that is from God. And if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the universe, why do you live as if you still belonged to the world? Why do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? All these regulations refer to things that perish with use. They are simply human commands and teachings. They have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-imposed piety, humility, and severe treatment of the body, but they are of no value in checking self-indulgence. And the next week, Britt, you get to pick it up, and there's a lot of good stuff there. The reason why these people hold to matters of food and drink and observing festivals and new moons and Sabbaths, 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 is because it was in their scripture. Because it was 
the revealed word of God to them is what they were told to do. It was everything that they had ever known. Jeff, would you kindly put up that citation of passages that we have listed there? Do we have those? No, not that one. Well, I must have put it in a later format. I have a thing that I'll bring up for second service that shows passage after passage in the Hebrew scriptures that relate to matters of food and drink and festivals and new moons and Sabbaths and regulations that would have been everything that they had ever known. Essentially, it would be like us saying, I just do what the Bible says. But what happens when Jesus, the Christ, takes what you thought the scriptures are saying and reveals that all the substance is really his. And that, no, he does not abolish the law and the prophets, but he fulfills them. And so we need not look elsewhere but him, who he is, what he has done. This message this morning is entitled somewhat comedically, it's called The Struggle is Real. And maybe that's humorous to me and not to you, but when we think about that statement that the struggle is real, it's typically in reference to everyday matters that should not be cumbersome to us, but for whatever reason, feel weighty. And you can search the internet and find pictures of cats laying by windows and, you know, the struggle is real, apparently, for the cats. Or you can think about how the struggle is real on Sunday mornings. You know, Britt and I joke, we have people here at church who we just, we, 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 we believe you don't have anything against us, but as soon as we take the stage, you sit in a posture and close your eyes. The struggle is real. I think about my contact this morning, my right eye, it must be accursed. It doesn't matter what set I have, something always happens. Someone's, yes, you understand my plight, right? There's like one side, my right eye. It won't take any contact. The struggle is real. Or the other night I was purchasing something on the internet, and then I was thinking about FPU. The struggle is real. I remember uh, trying to figure out um, the CCV on my credit card that I'd cut up. I couldn't remember. The struggle is real. Bob? The struggle is real. You know, those are joking matters, but the reality is, and Britt said it earlier when he came up for that moment after our first worship song, the struggle is real. Every single one of us walks into this room projecting confidence and a look of certainty. We walk around as though deep things don't dwell here. But the struggle is real. And the struggle was real for Paul, and it was real for the Christians in Colossae, and it's real for us today. 
And so let's cross our cultural bridge and talk very briefly about the ways in which that touches us this morning. Number one, the struggle is real because Christ is the mystery. You see, for those of us today in the church, and mind you, this section for Paul, he is very much concerned with the congregation's strength as a body. He's very much concerned that they would be experiencing schism of sorts because of well-respected individuals who would speak words that would contaminate their conviction that Christ could, in fact, hold all things together. Christ is the mystery because it does not make sense. It does not make sense for Jew and Gentile. It does not make sense for slave or free, rich or poor, young or old, male or female. It does not make sense that they would struggle together. It doesn't. And yet Christ is the mystery. And the problem is that we continue to want to look at things with our naked eye and our perception and the stories and our narratives that we tell ourselves without considering that he can do it. And it doesn't make sense. And yet, is that not the grace and the goodness of God? The struggle is real, number two, because you and I, all of us, carry deep spiritual insecurities. And I don't know if you could tell by this text, but there was probably a lot of spiritual insecurity in this congregation. When I say spiritual insecurity, I'm alluding to the fact that all of us do have our own insecurities, right? We have things about us perhaps physically or educationally or with our history, whatever it is that make us feel like we're not quite good enough. There's as if we have something to prove. And I know for every single one of us, there have been many, many times in our life, perhaps you find yourself there today where for whatever reason, you feel as though you still have something to prove, that you do not have the fullness of Christ available to you this day. And I might be speaking with this pastoral conviction and tone, but come on. You don't think I struggle with insecurities, those of the spiritual kind are perhaps even harder. When we ask ourselves whether or not we truly are good enough, whether or not we really believe in the truth of the gospel that by grace we are in fact saved through faith in Christ, that it's not about what we can conjure up or our working out or our doing of those things, and yet we feel the burden of scripture that says to work out our salvation with fear and trembling our minds before God the Father, the holy irreproachable one, certainly make us feel as though if Jesus were here, he would never really spend time with me. We all have those things. And so isn't it terrible that the struggle is real because we all next negatively contribute to one another's issues? It's pretty sad that in the church community where we all should be recognizing the fact that none of us should be here. None of us. Uh, really, none of us are deserving to be here. It's only because of Christ and what he triumphed over in death and sin on the cross and from the grave. And yet, for whatever reason, we have the audacity to look out for ways to disqualify one another based off of us 
saying, well, that's just what the Bible says. Or that's the way it's supposed to be. You know, when I hear Paul in Romans chapter 12 saying, do not be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. When I understand that for Paul, God's will for us was be conformed to the image of the Son, when I understand that in the Greek there, dokumanza literally means to try and see what it looks like to be conformed in the image of the Son, that in the church community, we would go through seasons in time where truly we don't know exactly what to do. But to become like Christ means instead of being held back by fear, we would risk on behalf of his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we would look for ways to try and see as a church family what it means to be conformed into his image. But instead, often, we find ways to disqualify others. So before my last little piece here, a lot of you knows that on Saturday nights, before I come to teach on Sunday morning, for fear of missing my alarm, I come and sleep here at church. I know. And I shoot hoops across the hallway, and I pray. I pray that more basketballs would go in, but God doesn't answer those that way. And I go through iterations of the sermon in my mind. And I consider what God would be saying to us as a people called Sunridge. And so last night as I was shooting hoops, I thought, you know what? I feel like this is a pretty relevant chapter of scripture. And I thought, what if I could write a, a very small letter to our church? Perhaps with some feelings like that of the Apostle Paul. Can I read this to you? And then I'll just mention the last one in the blank and our worship team can come up. Dear Sunridge, I've never written you a letter before. And yet for some reason it seems appropriate for me at this juncture to briefly reflect on my short time with you as I rejoice in this present time toward our future as a church family. See, I took a wild risk and in trust of what God was purportedly doing here, moved my young family to excitedly join yours when I was 24 years old. And at 24, I was only two years into marriage, and our then only son was two months shy of his first birthday. And from a modern neurological perspective, I was technically in the last year of my adolescence and emerging into adulthood. I'm 31 now. Mallory and I recently celebrated nine years of marriage, and our oldest has two little brothers to wrestle with in our family room. And I know that to many of you, my age understandably paints me as young, which I am, but I'm happy to be a younger brother in this church family, albeit a younger brother with a pastoral role and voice here. There was no rational reason to leave the church family that I did behind back in 2013. Everyone there told me I was crazy. Why leave a church of 4,000 and look to start anew amongst a hurting church of 400 or so? To this day, when I go back and visit, they ask, when are you coming back home? The problem, of course, is that home isn't 54.4 miles up the 15 and westbound on the 91. This is home. This valley the people in it, 
this church, not this building, but you, a people called Sunridge who continue to make room for more. Britt, Cindy, our elders, our staff, you. So while spending the last several weeks digesting, studying, praying through, and ruminating on the words of the Apostle Paul to a church family of Colossians comprised of many individuals whom he had never met personally, I was struck by how his words suddenly reveal a heart that quietly aches, the concerns he can foresee, and how he accordingly struggles on their behalf. And if Paul can communicate those things to a small church in a valley where he does not reside, I feel as though my love for our church in this valley can reveal not only pastoral care, but my emotions as a regular person. My heart has begun to quietly ache. Not because there aren't so many incredible things to celebrate about who God is, what he's continually made clear to us in Christ, nor for a lack of stories that testify to how he continues to transform us through his Holy Spirit. Just as it's clear that Paul had much to encourage the Colossians about, there's no shortage of things for which I praise God for in regards to his ongoing redemptive work in, through, and around us. Rather, my heart aches because I know from experience that anytime God is greatly at work, the enemy gradually and then aggressively looks for ways to divide, some of which at times I've seen and heard, none of which I am completely fearful of all of which I believe Christ will work together for our good as we are further conformed into his image. So I write in response to some, preemptively to many, but with singular purpose for all of us. Maybe, may we be resolved to continue to struggle alongside and on behalf of one another so that, in Paul's words, our hearts would be encouraged and united in love so that we may have all the riches of assured understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ himself. He's the only one who makes possible a family like ours, one that, though despite natural disagreements, which will continually stem from personal, theological, interpretive, political, philosophical, organizational, or experiential preferences, would be ever determined to collectively root ourselves in him. So Sunridge whether you're my brother or my sister, whether I know you by name or have yet to connect with you, whether you are exploring faith or struggling with doubt, whether you are close in age or distant in decades, whether you first arrived here as a young adult like me in your 20s or you've only recently decided to call Sunridge home. For those who remember the middle school church in a box and others who know nothing other than attending and serving this renovated industrial building, for survivors of previous splits to all of us being called to endure whatever comes our way. May we steward wholeheartedly for the sake of Christ's name being exalted in this valley and his kingdom come in this world. And may we fight the good fight of faith as Paul writes to take hold of the life that is really life and would we walk forward together in him. Jed. Our last fill in the blank is Christ Jesus, the Lord desires to grow us for the sake of this life. I'd like to invite up our worship team as we conclude our services. And the thing that I'm trying to make clear, not just in that letter, but in that final word, is that when we think about Christ Jesus, the Lord, 
He's not just concerned with something for us far off in the distant, but for something happening right here and now. And so we're asking you to consider his growth for you as an individual is for the good of his growth of us collectively for this body. And if for whatever reason you find yourself in a position of life where the struggle is real, would you, as Britt emailed out, recognize that Jesus is as real as that struggle. In fact, he is more real. He is not fearful of the thing that you are scared of. He is not worried about whether or not he can handle. He holds it all together. And the beauty for us as a church family is that in trusting him, who he is and what he says he is going to do, we get to experience a life that is really life. Let's pray.